Well, I'm Robert Harmon, the director of the movie. And I'm Eric Red, the writer of the movie. I guess I can start by reminiscing that the titles, I remember the titles were all kinds of issue, all kinds of an issue, because we didn't have any money. So our production, for designer, so our production designer, who was Dennis Gassner, one of Dennis Gassner's, actually it was Dennis Gassner's first job as production designer. He's now gone on to do almost all the Coen Brothers movies and all kinds of great work. But Dennis actually designed the titles, whatever that may be worth. The opening of the script of The Hitcher was uh, virtually about 10 or 12 pages set inside a car, a confrontation between uh, Jim Halsey and John Ryder, and wound up being beautifully visualized. If anybody's technically interested, with a lot of rear screen projection, this whole section of the film is all, uh, all the interiors of the car involving characters, which is to say not this POV, but all the shots of the characters are all done on stage. Shots like this. I was reluctant to do it because I'd seen it done badly so many times, but John Seal insisted that it would work, and it did. And all the rest of this material was shot outside of Las Vegas, area called the uh, Valley of Fire, as I recall. All done second unit. As we were cutting the movie, I went back and picked up all these shots outside of Vegas. It's 4.15 on a Saturday morning in El Paso town. This is Uncle Bruce here, going on with Marvin Market before John. The station called El Paso Business. Slaughter steers and heifers in the Midwest. Steady to 50 cents lower. A choice, 1,050 to 13 Actually took a lot of work to find something appropriately mundane to put on the radio. <laughs> we finally found a farm and market report that we wrote and uh, had recorded by our uh, ADR group. The idea for the Hitcher, by the way, uh, originated from the Doors song, Riders in the Storm. This upcoming was a little bit of a tough sequence. That moment was how the script began.
told me never to do this. Obviously, we're purposely waiting to really get a good look at John Ryder. Keep him a little bit mysterious. Bless you. My name's Jim Halsey. John Ryder. So you want me to drop you off somewhere? I'm getting your car wet. Oh, this isn't my car. It's a drive away. Guy who owns it's in San Diego. So where are you headed? You got a smoke? Yeah, sure. Notice the water droplet hanging from his nose here. I recall, <clears throat> excuse me, I recall very clearly as a first-time director, wondering whether such a thing, which was an idea that I'd had when I'd read the script, was an idea, was it worth the time and trouble to actually accomplish? Because it's one of the things that's interesting about shooting a movie is you have concepts and ideas about things, and you finally try to execute them, and you're confronted with the physical reality of the making of the movie, and you're always having to ask, your, you ask yourself the question, is it worth the time and the trouble? Very hard to gauge those things, but this one, even though it was a major pain, I think it's a, I think it was worth it. <laughs> it adds a little something. What are you doing? What'd you do that for? I asked you a question. Scare you? Look, I think you better get out now. The ride's over. Goodbye. I'm gonna sit here. You're gonna drive. I would drive. Excuse me. What was the matter with that car back there? Why? Said I saw some, that's all. I ran out of gas. So you need a gas station? Would help. Okay. Of course, the dialogue is all intentionally clipped, one sentence, chilling style dialogue. What about gas? I don't need gas. What do you want? <laughs> What's so funny? That's what the other guy said. <laughs> Who's the other guy? The guy who was driving that car back there. The guy who picked me up before you did. 
Was that him in the car? Yeah, I'm sure it was. Because <laughs> it walked very far. Why is that? Because I cut off his legs. And his arms. And his head. And I'm gonna do the same to you. I've certainly always interpreted that Rutgers' way of handling that little section was to deliver it in such a way that you're not really that sure whether he really did it or not. At least that's how I've always felt. He does it with such a twinkle that you, you have to wonder whether he's pulling Halsey's leg or not. And Eric, do you remember this all used to be a toll booth? Yes, until we found out there were no toll booths in Texas. Yeah, and I, I remember that we couldn't afford to create one. Uh, uh, it, it became a budgetary issue, and uh, I don't remember exactly where the idea came from to just do it as a construction site. What part of Illinois are you from? What? Your license plate. Great use of source lighting in this particular scene. Again, uh, the more mundane the dialogue, the better we all, we all felt. All right, the road's clear now. Come on, get going, sweethearts. I have to say, I think it's one of Mark Isham's really early scores. I'm not sure exactly what number, but very, very helpful to the movie. Very spare, very appropriate. It's kind of a non-thematic score. It's more of a tonal score. Do you want to know what happens to an eyeball when it gets punctured? We're still in the land of uh, rear screen projection here. Do you get any idea how much blood jets out of a guy's neck? What do you want? <laughs> the rear screen also allowed uh, the use of long lenses in this scene, right? Mm -hmm. you, you got the knife. You'll stick me with it before I can do anything. That's right. So what have we got to lose? Stop me. A Rutger ad lib, and a brilliant one. Keep driving. Please, I'll do anything. Say four words. And of course, here's the key to the movie. Say, what did I? Say what? If I can say that. Sure you can. Repeat after me. I. It's extraordinary the force the actors I put into this dialogue here. Want. What?
I remember saying to Tommy Howell, just act like this is the last day of shooting. That was the direction. Yeah! 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 yeah. Ha -ha. Fuck you, buddy! Ha -ha. It definitely elicited the right reaction. I also have to say, as most of you know, I'm sure directing a movie is nothing but compromise. But this scene right here, primarily because weather is the main thing that almost never cooperates, was exactly as I'd always pictured it, right down to the clouds. I mean, this is exactly what this should look like. And I couldn't believe it when a storm front was moving in and we, we got this kind of uh, cloud background. If you can imagine this shot with a bright blue sky, incredibly, incredibly inferior. So uh, I feel to this day really lucky. It happened twice in this movie and uh, I'll mention the other time when we get there. This was the first. So I recall this was all outside, this section of the film was done outside of Barstow, I think. Barstow, California, in the deserts. scene also uh, illustrates one of the many other kinds of problems you encounter, that the man driving the other car, for obvious real, will become obvious reasons, had to be a stunt driver. And typically stunt drivers are not the world's best actors, but I think the guy does all right. <laughs> I can't remember who he was, but... The minor little technical note, because I remember this very clearly. Last minute idea was to hide a little small camera called an IMO in the bumper, front bumper of that bus. Uh, if you look at that section, you'll see that the bumper actually accidentally came off. And therefore that little camera, which is in a little small steel crash box, also came off. The bus ran it over. And when we wrapped, when I called cut on that shot and we went to, in effect, collect the cameras that we used, we couldn't find the camera. It seemed to have disappeared because we later found the bus, due to its weight, had actually pressed the entire camera and its crash box into the pavement and was flush with the road. And therefore we didn't see it because it's a black crash box against black asphalt, so we had to dig it out of the road. It still got usable footage out of it. I've always liked this long, this is uh, so far one continuous shot from the time he pulls up to the, gets out of the car. and. Uh, I've always liked this shot. The Hitch is a movie with no subplot. It sets up the conflict and the 
basic action and at the beginning and follows through the main character and his confrontation with the bad guy and there's no backstory, no digressions in the main story. And I'm convinced that's part of its appeal. It's, uncon it's unconventional in that respect and I think people appreciated not having a certain overlay of Hollywood paraphernalia in the story. Wasn't the first time it was done, but I don't know if I've seen a film since then that was done like this. And of course, we this was all done with large fans and endless, endless, endless bags of uh, what I think is now illegal, something called Fuller's, Fuller's Earth, which I think has now been uh, outlawed <laughs> due to its lodging in one's lungs, unfortunately. This was a real location, a real location, as I recall, in, in or just outside of Death Valley, California. It's a town with two or three buildings, and this is one of them. It's funny watching this movie now. It's, uh, the coverage is very classical and solid in, in the days of MTV filmmaking. You know, this almost seems like a throwback. This camera shake on the insert of the, when he drops the keys to the floor has always bothered me. There's a little wobble in it. And uh, still, after all these years, I wonder We're gonna why. We're going to go back and reshoot it. I, mean, I would it, love it to. It won't stand. I would this, love This to. will not stand. <laughs> of course, there's very little dialogue in the movie between the original scene where the kid picks up the hitcher through now and even through the next scene, uh, some of the next scenes in the film. It's all visual. And sound, of course. Yeah. Sounds which were actually in the script. Another um, surprisingly difficult scene to shoot and required a rubber thermos. We were concerned about Tommy Howell's teeth, and so we came up with a rubber-tipped thermos, a rubber-tipped thermos for obvious reasons. And those shots of uh, Ryder's truck coming right at the camera were accomplished very simply. We just put a bunch of old tires off the back of the insert car and just had him drive right at us as hard as he could. The camera was completely protected, but it was very frightening for the camera operator. I remember he was very, uh, very upset by it because it looked like he was going to have his eye put out, but of course he didn't. I believe Rutger's a stunt driver too, right? Yes, Rutger did his own driving. 
And this is another typical directorial photographic trick, the world of two suns. Notice Tommy Howell is heavily backlit, and we cut to the other side, so is the smoke. But it looks better, so we actually cheated it, and the truck is actually driving away on the side of the road that you can see through this window. But through the magic of editing, it looks like he's looking at something that's on the opposite side. This gas station is a, a real location. I'm happy to say that we were able to do whatever we wanted to. And as you can see, what we wanted was a lot. <laughs> it was a derelict gas station that Dennis did a beautiful, Dennis Gassner did a beautiful job of making it look like it was uh, working but closed. But when we found it, it was really quite a shell. There was no glass. It was, it was a real mess. And we, we rebuilt it to look, uh, in the sections that we can see, we rebuilt it to look reasonable. Also, in second unit, all this uh, close-up work of the match, all these cuts of the match that are upcoming were all done in second unit much later. And as I recall, it took endless, endless numbers of takes to get the falling match, uh, which is coming up. Maybe a hundred times we tried it and finally achieved this. Short little cut, but it, it does pay off. That was one of the scenes in the picture that was just incredibly gratifying to see executed in the way it was written, in the visual and, you know, dynamic okay, sense that it was. We're half an hour into the movie before, pretty much about half an hour now, before the third character's even been introduced. It's almost been a two-character film up until now. Another real location that was derelict and we found it simply built up enough to be photographable and believable as, a, uh, as an ongoing uh, restaurant. But it, in fact, was a, a complete mess when we first got there. No! Listen! Please, I have to call the cops! 
the one female character has a hard time in the universe of this particular picture. Obviously a very early part of Jennifer's. She was certainly um, not nearly as known as she is now. I remember we, we read some number of actresses for this part. She walked in. I think we had heard of her, but that's about all. She walked in and read, walked out of the room. We all looked at each other and said, why, mo why go on from here? Let's just let's see if we can't hire her. She was so fantastic. And uh, I think repeated that in the movie. Hello, police. In a very thankless part. <laughs> Well, I picked this guy up hitchhiking. Thankless but critical. And it's the same guy who blew up that gas station. Jim Halsey. H-A-L-S-E-Y. I'm at the, uh, the Longhorn restaurant. It's right off of... You do? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I won't go anywhere. I remember also as a neophyte director not having the cutting pattern of every section worked out. And this was one of the sections right in here. I really wasn't sure how much of his clothes he should take off before I was going to cut and how exactly I was going to put it together. I never really had a chance to plan it. So somewhere are dailies of Tommy Howell taking off, just completely getting undressed and completely getting dressed. Ten-minute takes because I was so unsure and so unclear how to, where and when to put the cuts. I just shot the whole thing. Good lesson was learned that day. Two lessons. One was try to plan as much as possible, and the other is if you're not sure, shoot it. Because I was sure that I would hear well, no end of flack about all this footage of Tommy Howe getting undressed and dressed, but I never heard a word about it, as though directorial prerogative allowed such a thing. So I've done it to this day. <laughs> I'd also add this was the first time I ever was able to indulge what has become a almost personal signature of main characters looking at themselves in mirrors. Eric certainly wrote this into the script. I liked it so much. In several other films I've done, I've, I've made sure that such scenes exist, and I like them a lot. pick up and leave but you never know my brother bill is from mars actually we're all from mars around here we keep our spaceship out back so what planet are you from 
What? Yeah, I heard a word I said, have you? Yes, I have. It's okay. Go on, eat your cheeseburger. I had to get some stuff out of the freezer anyway. Over the years, since people have come up to, I'm sure, Eric and myself and other people involved in the movie, this is certainly one of the scenes they always seem to talk about. That it is. A lot of the conception of the character of the Hitcher is that he's sometimes scariest when he's not there, not just when he's there. Or the things he does when he's not on screen. That was the same beat as the script, but a, an improvement over the action in the screenplay. I remember this scene outside this diner was the first day's work, uh, which was challenging to, to get into the rhythm of making the movie with this scene. But it actually, you, I don't think you can tell that we all were just finding it on this very first day. It's a great use of long lenses in this movie. Again, a wonderful location that we just happened to find out in the desert. A lot of desert over a lot of states, too, actually. Is it four states in this? Nevada, Arizona, California, and uh, I guess that was it. I think that's it, yes. That's quite a quite a quite a bit of terrain yeah. to cover. Some of the interiors, actually, we'll get to them. I'll talk about them when we get there. Are actually done in in the city of Las Vegas itself. Jesus! Oh my God! He put that there. He put that there. Now shut up! Don't move. What's going on? What'd you do to him? You keep to yourself. Why are you arresting him? Pick up that stuff. You know this guy? Not really, no. Well, then what the hell is he doing inside? Half the cops in the state are looking for this creep. Let's get this sack of shit out of here. It's a cut I've always liked right here. From this to that. It's rather invisible as a cut, but of course the size of the shot changes radically. This scene I also remember, again, I have to keep, keep referencing as a first-time director, but had this concept to shoot this scene, this section of this scene this way with one circular dolly that never revealed the face of the guy doing the questioning. Just hearing his belt squeak and watching him wipe the lens and walk around the background. And uh, I remember pulling Ed Feldman aside, who was the producer, and saying, I just, just from my own survival here, I want you to know I'm planning to shoot this scene this way with no coverage at all, and we'll be locked into this, and there'll be nothing we can do about it editorial. And he was, in his infinite wisdom, said, fine. It's a drive away. I'm supposed to be delivering it to California. But I do remember after we shot this, John Jackson, who's playing the, the cop here, said, okay, yeah, you know, 
had an idea for what he was going to do in his coverage, and I had to tell him there wasn't going to be any. I know the number of the driveaway company. Why don't you call them? Well, hell, so I can better start calling somebody because you're in deep shit. It's 312-399-2090. I know the number so well because I called them so many times. I was on their waiting list for a month. I wanted a car going to California. That's why it took so long. Actually, when I wrote the script, I had done an auto driveaway from New York to Texas. So... That was the background for this particular character now detail. What are we gonna do? Get one more call. Call my brother for God's sakes. He'll be home. It's 312 905 9044. This, of course, is the beginning of the second act of The Hitcher because Halsey's gone from being terrorized and pursued by The Hitcher to now being framed for the killings that the psychotic has done and now he's got to get himself out of this situation maybe they let it ring long enough do i look like a killer to you i had some folks come in from austin tomorrow gonna be really interested in talking to you i'm gonna give you a chance to get some rest get him locked up hell get him out of my sight Let's go. Jack. That kid isn't a killer. Any fool could say that. Okay, face front. Hold real still. I turn to your right. Well, I just realized where I've seen John Jackson years yeah. later. Here's one of the sequences that was in Vegas. I don't remember the exact facility, but obviously some sort of jail facility right in the right in the right in the middle of the heart of Las Vegas. But of course, again through the amazing power of editing, you feel like you're in the middle of uh, of a desert police department here. Because it is a real place, very difficult to shoot in. Some of these shots are a bit clunkier than I would have preferred, but uh, there was just nowhere to move, and there were no wild walls and nowhere to put anything, and so we just did the best we could, and I think it worked out all right. Really subtle use of scoring here. It's really nice.
Good use of subliminal sound effects there. Another really great invention of Eric's, this little moment in the script, I think. It was always wonderful in its... How can I put it? I like the fact that it was a very small thing, but it's still a bombshell. And that is this right here. One of the smaller but um, just Im immeasurably enhanced uh, things in the film, uh, the, the sound played a, a part in the in the script, but in the movie is just beautifully woven into the the story. The use of sound effects and the oral environment. Hopefully creepy, complete with sort of visual non sequitur. <laughs> the arrival of this dog into the middle of this scene. Yeah, there's a scene coming up I got blamed for that I wasn't responsible for. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say these dogs arrived in this scene because there was a whole other sequence that involved the dogs outside, which we ended up, as I recall, we shot it and cut it and decided it was okay to just have a German shepherd walk into the middle of this police station, even though he'd never been introduced, properly introduced in any previous scenes. the editing in this section also very effective. Frank Curiosity and I, I think appropriately, didn't cut around to the other side of this shot for quite a long time. I really pushed into the back of his head, which I think is essentially better than coming around and getting on his face much earlier. Puts the audience into his point of view. This material of Tommy Howell up in the rocks, that was our very last day of shooting. And I don't 
enough, I think enough time has gone by that I can reveal that we were all quite hungover. We had a bit of a celebration the previous night. There was one day left, which had almost nothing in it. None of his POVs, that was all done at another location, but all this stuff of him running around in the rocks. Very simple for everybody, except for Tommy. <laughs> Now we're back uh, near old Route 66 through the California deserts again. Certainly it's areas like this that made me so anxious to shoot the film in uh, an anamorphic and uh, 235 ratio as we did. Because these kinds of locations just call, scream out for it, really. off and lock your partner's hands behind his back. You mean me? I mean you. Me? You, yes, you! It's a little Mutt and Jeff stuff going on here, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. We're gonna go for a little ride now. You two get in the front. Not all the Texas constabulary is up to snuff. When do you open the door? Open the door, Jack. Get in the car! Okay, you and me. We're gonna get in together, okay? Okay? Yeah. Ready? Steady. Go. Can I close the door? Yeah, shut the door. Start the car. Again, that opening scene was the only one we did with the rear, rear projection, so Eric did not make it easy to shoot the movie, staging as much as he did in cars. I'd challenge anybody to notice that that opening scene was done rear projection, though. Has anyone ever mentioned it to you? No, but I'm sure cameramen and other people can. It depends on the, f yeah, in, in certain video formats, uh, the contrast gets screwy and you can see it, but on film it actually is more convincing than on video. Okay, do it, but don't tell anybody where we are. Central, this is I said, don't tell them anything. The cars are deceptively, uh, you think you write a scene in a car and, oh, well, that'll be easy to film. In fact, it's just the reverse, requiring all sorts of techniques and camera angles. Our one character name change uh, from Captain Esterhaas to Captain Estridge because there was a screenwriter named Esterhaas and we had to change it. Captain, this is Jim Halsey. You gotta listen to me, Captain. I swear I didn't kill those people. I got set up afraid by this guy who picked up hitchhiking. What do you suggest we do, son? Come on, man, you tell me. 
Again, there's nothing in the story yet that takes you away from the first-person point of view of the kid and the protagonist. That scene turned out great. Again, a very tough day for Tommy Howell, but I think he really pulled it off. I've always liked what he did in this scene. This is the other scene I was ref referring to earlier, in which the weather was a, an extreme participant that really cooperated. Even more, co more than cooperated, actually provided a, uh, a moment here that we had never anticipated getting. And that is, uh, you'll notice that there's a light change coming up. That is, that is literally a cloud moving away from the sun, which uh, prompted Tommy Hell to look up at it. And uh, it all feels kind of magical, even though it was just something that happened. Is this a multi-camera setup? Yes. Tommy puts his head down. And the sun comes out. And he starts to glow. Completely natural. This, of course, we picked up later when we found the right moment as his POV. But it's in effect what happened. And he played it as though it was, forgive me, Eric, scripted. <laughs> Still in the same area, Route 66, in the California desert. I have no idea if this place is still there. Well, I know you caught something because you're probably the best thing fisherman around here. But if that's the best you can eat, I don't know what you're going to be able to do. Well, that'll tide us over until yeah. well, like More nonsense dialogue, which somehow seems to fit. Yeah, I'll see you. <laughs> Bye, Alice. Well, what happened to you? Nothing. Nothing? Nothing happened. I need some coffee. This might be a... a Good opportunity just to ad address our approach to humor in this film because there is some humor in The Hitcher. Um, we never played it silly. We never made jokes with the story. We created a suspension of disbelief in what was happening with the characters and the situation. However, there's certain scenes, and this one's probably the key one, where there was some humor inherent in the interaction between the kid and the Hitcher. 
It was brilliantly brought out by the actors. <clears throat> How do you like Shitsville? Don't you move. You stay seated right where you are. Or I'll blow your brains to your ass. The guy's empty. Yeah? Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> you never checked it, did you? So help me, I'll blow you in half. Squeeze the trigger. I will. Please. Oh, I will. Because you can sure as shit bet I'm gonna squeeze mine. Why are you doing this to me? Whatever it's worth, it's certainly my favorite scene in the movie. Once again, these locations in this format strike me as wonderful. They're just the forms of shapes, of signs, and awnings, and buildings, and columns. Hit your trivia. This fellow right here in the foreground is our prop master. And this bus bathroom is the, uh, it's actually the only fabricated set that we ever shot on a stage. And this is actually on a stage. I mean, Eric, all Eric's riding in cars is one thing, but setting a scene in a bus bathroom, was even that was a little beyond being able to do on location. So we finally relented and built something. I almost had him. <laughs> Well, we didn't make it easy for ourselves because we'd it's actually standard size. It simply was a wall missing. 
that's why so many of the angles are low because it's the only place to put the camera was down low and hope to, uh, to see what we needed to see. This was an interesting bit of production management. This actual sequence on this bus was actually shot as we moved the company from one location to another. I forgot where, from where to where, but we were actually in transit to our next location. <laughs> so looking back on it, it was sort of almost ridiculous for to approach it, but uh, it worked. Again, not that these close-ups aren't, aren't reasonably effective, but one of the reasons they're so close is because the room was so tiny and trying to, trying to feel claustrophobic. Even though it was a set, we still tried to shoot it as though we really had nowhere to go. Hence, that's why we're this close. It certainly works for the scene. Without the realistic and uh, convincing level of execution, this story simply would not have worked. You spit on my wrist. Wipe it off. 
You can see I'm unarmed. Wipe it off. Come on, Lyle, go easy. Shut up! I'm just getting back to the station. I said shut up! Wipe it off! Put the gun down. Don't turn around. Just drop. I can't believe you were going to do what you were going to do. Don't you know who he is? You got the wrong man, Lyle. I care we do. Now just settle down and... Don't come any closer. Hand me that gun. Just empty him. You're in enough trouble already. Just threw your life down the toilet. When the truth comes down, I'll be just fine. I'm taking the sheriff's office in Riley. You stay put. Let's go. Let's go! Now what? We're going to Riley. Wasn't this scene one of the first uh, uses of a camera remote? Um, I don't remember, to tell you the truth. I'm not sure. I do know that it was, again, especially for a neophyte director, extremely difficult to shoot. And once again, we did find this terrific location that had these sort of undulating roads that helped make it interesting. This is El Centro, wasn't it? The, down around yes, the near El Centro, California, right. Really unusual use of scoring in this scene, too. It's not at all the music you'd expect for it. We tried a fair amount of interesting angles and shooting, we haven't seen them yet, coming up. A lot of it was um, probably fairly ill-advised from a safety point of view, but luckily nobody was hurt. We never quite got some of the shots we were looking for, but we got some other shots that were not anticipated that were still uh, effective. But certainly some of the things that we were attempting to do, today we would have CG'd it. Uh, that there was no such thing, of course, at this time. So it was either put in front of the camera and photographed or it wasn't done. There's a stunt coming up that would never have looked as good in CG. Shots like like this, but we were we were trying for something else that we didn't quite achieve. 
So is this a crane off the front of an insert car? Yes. Shot maker? Some of, the, some of it was, yeah, off the side of the insert car, yeah. And this um, so-called double barrel roll had not been done before. This. Two cars. You had a camera on the bumper of the follow car? Um, no, actually, that little shot that looked like it would have been from the bumper of the following car was actually okay? a camera that was armed out on a little crane off the side of the insert car. Sure. Yeah. I remember this was a, a lot of, there was a lot of discussion about our sympathy for the characters. Uh, uh, there, was some, there was some push from some parties to have these cops in these cars crawling out of the cars, obviously unhurt, so that we wouldn't blame our two main characters for the death of these policemen. But uh, luckily that discussion was had before we shot the stunt. And when we shot the stunt, I think all voices were silenced on that point, as it would have been rather silly to have guys climbing out of those cars saying, are you okay? <laughs> <laughs> Phew, let's do it again. <laughs> A recollection also of this upcoming helicopter sequence. I don't think I'm giving anything away in terms of discussing the helicopter crashes. It was, again, really complicated especially for our, what was really quite a small movie at that time. And we dropped our hero helicopter, this helicopter, later on in this sequence when it crashes, we dropped it from a larger helicopter. Complicated stunt involving making, having to be sure that the cables that suspended the helicopter we were dropping didn't get pulled up into the updraft of the carry helicopter, et cetera, et cetera. And I still remember one of the producers coming up to me we had nine or ten cameras ready, all kinds of things going on. He, he said, what happens if this doesn't work? Because we only had one helicopter, really only had one shot at it. I still remember saying, well, if it doesn't work, we'll go to plan B, which happily satisfied him, and he walked away because there was no plan B that I knew of. It was just a way of proceeding with the day, and we just had our fingers crossed. Helicopter crash was my first day on the set. I can remember. It's a pretty amazing thing to write and then see. Done. Again, here's Rutger doing all his own driving. Even these wide shots, they're all Rutger.
get out of here. Why didn't they kill us? Let's go. These two shots coming up, this one and this one, were added later. I can't recall why, but that's why, again, that's why they're so close, is because they're in completely the wrong location. We get away with it, but only by being so tight. For some reason, those were done as pickups later. Another shot that's easy to conceptualize and hard to accomplish because it's so difficult to get a movie company where you want it, when you want it. So <laughs> if there's a shot that's so carefully timed to a natural phenomenon like a sunset as this, it's always difficult to get it to happen. Once again, we got pretty lucky with the weather. Had it been completely overcast, wouldn't be nearly as good. Natural light plays a is a almost a fourth character in the story in this movie. And another problem location, the inside of a motel room. I, I can't remember the details. We lost the location and suddenly had to shoot this scene in the motel in which we were staying to shoot other scenes. And it was very tight and, um, like most motel rooms, rather boring. Blank walls and so, once again, we're pretty tight so we don't look at how awful this room is. Of course, all the lighting effects were to try to keep it real and get the sense of moving traffic and trucks outside. And also to set up the fact that one of those moving trucks outside as the lights play across the room becomes a bit of a interesting reveal what are you doing? a short while after this. No, no calls. It's only my phone. I said no calls. Not until we figure out what we're going to do. I can explain it. It's not that simple. In the original script, uh, Jim Halsey and Nash uh, sleep together. They have sex, and we changed during production that, that they don't. And there's a rather serious dramatic reason why that doesn't happen. trying to continue to set up the life outside of this little room. Another bit of extreme mundanity coming up. 
again, rooms that almost impossible to shoot in, a real bathroom in a real motel. The camera, as I recall, was out the window. We were all hovering around this little window, which is the only place we could get the camera to get anything like a shot in there. All that traffic outside the window, all the lights coming and going, all that was really just a setup for this shot right here. Put a lot of conjecture of on what Rutger says there. I will leave it at that. Whoops, wrong size fingers. <laughs> Again, all of these, what to my mind are sort of these mundane radio broadcasts and TV things, they're all, they all play a part. And there's a little bit of a consistency to all this undercurrent of, quote, normal life happening underneath this very odd story. Well, the details grounded in reality to make the audience believe what they're seeing. In my opinion, the sequence coming up is the linchpin to the Hitcher and is the reason people will love or hate the movie and is the source of uh, the power of the story and involves something happening to one of the characters that 
just you don't believe could possibly happen. And it was uh, very intentional on our part, so it was always in the script. Um, although in the script it was actually a pickup truck that was involved and not a tractor-trailer 18-wheeler, and the tractor-trailer 18-wheeler was a vastly improved uh, visual uh, and setup for it. But it's uh, one normally doesn't lose one of the main characters in a movie, let alone in the way that it happens in this film. And this is uh, one of the trademarks of The Hitcher. And of course there was endless discussion about it. Yep. during all phases of the production. Including by one of the stars. <laughs> Do you want to tell that story? It's a great shot. In a horror movie, you go for the jugular. She'll die. 
think it's just me, but I've always thought of that as the Sistine Chapel moment. Rutgers says, oh God, and reaches out with his finger and touches Tommy's hand and removes the gun. It always reminded me of that. I'm sure it's elevating us beyond where we should want to go, but I've always thought of it that way. You would sit and watch this film in theaters with audiences and you could hear people saying while the film was going on, they're not going to do it. He's not going to do it. He's not going to do it. Then they did it. I can't tell you how sorry I am for you, son. Anything I can do for you? When you're finished here, you should probably go see a real doctor and get a complete checkup. We all know there's nothing you could do. Who is he? We don't know. No prison record, no driver's license, no birth certificate. We ran his prints through the computers. We came up with nothing. Now, I know that we'll find something, but right now, I don't even know his name. How do you feel? Tired. He can't see us or hear us. I want to talk to him. What's your name? Come on. Come on. What's your name? Do you have a name? John. What'd you say? His name is John Ryder. Do you have a police record? Interesting bit of trivia here. I don't know if the film had an unfortunate influence, but when the uh, the the real life the serial killer uh, Richard Ramirez, who was known as the Night Stalker, was taken away after sentencing to trial as he was led into the prison bus, he turned around to the camera crews that were present and said, "I'll see you in Disneyland." I remember worrying that the censors would have some concern about this shot, but luckily they didn't get it, I think, and left it alone. Did the censors have concerns with any parts of this? No, not that I recall. Well, it's mostly a film of off-screen violence, not on-screen violence. 
once again, we're limited here for camera angles because we're right in the middle of Las Vegas. Another location we lost that was really out in the middle of nowhere, a beautiful location. I can't remember what went wrong, but we had suddenly had to shoot this scene in town in Las Vegas. So with reasonable care, the angles just don't reveal that. screen projection coming up for those who are interested. in the El Centro area of the California deserts. Of course, the world of the Hitcher is a very spare one. Okay? There's very little, as Eric said, there's very little in the way of subplot. There's very little in the way of background action or extras. Very few right, other cars. I only bring this up because our produce, two of our producers are actually driving one of the few additional cars that's in the background coming up. Two guys who are really uh, great fans of the movie and great supporters of the movie all the way through. Kip Allman and David Bombeck. Both of whom are, uh, have sadly passed on. But it was, there was some minor contention between the Kip and myself, Kip and David and myself, about the number of additional cars in the background. I kept thinking that it was appropriate and it would be right for there to be next to nothing. And in these areas of the country, of the, these areas of the United States, they are very sparsely populated and it was not unrealistic to keep it empty. But Kip became so insistent that we had to have another car somewhere. He jumped into his car and there he is. <laughs> driving his car to provide a little bit of what he hoped would be additional verisimilitude to driving back there. Yeah, I do. 
And again, nicely cooperative weather. I have a thing for skies and clouds, and I'm so happy that we were not stuck too terribly with a lot of blue sky. More difficult stunt work. Okay, so the weather doesn't always cooperate. We have some blue skies in here, but uh, I think I'm the only one who cares. Here's another little sequence which involved, I think, probably some work outside the bounds of total safety. Some of our squibs, which are the little explosive, little, little small-scale explosive devices used to blow up things like headlights and do uh, gun hits, weren't working very convincingly. So I was actually able to convince the, uh, our effects guy to use live rounds. Obviously, Tommy Hall was not in the car. Some of these shots of the windshield and the headlights, all that, are actually live, live ammunition. And nobody was in the car. It was never a chance of anyone getting hurt. It was just a...
of course, through coverage and Mark's wonderful score, I always like the extreme, despite the violence and the action of the movie, the extreme gentleness with which it appears to end. That little caress with the gun, of course, is supposed to be just a little bit of Tommy Howell's character's appreciation in some, I wouldn't say sick, but in some dark way, a bit of appreciation for what the Rutger character has done. And that throwing of the chains, my recollection of that is another of Rutger's numerous contributions to this, to the project. I think that was his idea. Ryder disappears in the desert from whence he came. for a long time after we shot the work that day, waiting for this light to get this shot, till the first AD's everlasting anguish. But <laughs> we were okay for the schedule, so we just waited and waited and waited and thought this might be a useful shot. Didn't realize, I didn't know we'd use it for the end credits, credits but uh, it seemed to serve well for it. always so much discussion about so many things. I personally very much like the softness with which it ends in terms of this music and the melancholy of it all. There was a lot of conversation that we shouldn't leave the audience so depressed. Um, but luckily, uh, wiser heads prevailed, and I'm not referring to my own, but other people of additional authority didn't agree. But there are always these issues to be contended with. <laughs> 